Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. The NHS is in such a perilous state that one in eight Britons are now paying for private health care. And you can see why they do. Seven million of us are on an NHS waiting list. And every time doctors and nurses go on strike, that list unfortunately gets longer. But with the NHS in a constant state of crisis, it's hard to get a perspective on where things have gone wrong and what we could actually do to make the NHS better. David Haslam has thought deeply about that. He's a former GP. He's also chaired NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, and the British Medical Association, as well as the Royal College of GPs. David, welcome to The Bunker. Really good to be with you. We talk about the NHS all the time at the moment, but in a way that I characterise as despairing. Things are always getting worse. Why are we so bad at getting some perspective and discussing a service that is absolutely central to British identity? Yeah, that's such a such a good question, Ros. I mean, the, the simple fact is that health is central to our lives. You know, the, 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 the cliche of as long as you've got your health, you know, people trot out all the time. And, and, and I can't remember who it was, but a politician who said that the, the NHS is the closest that the British have to a, a national religion. And I think this sort of absolute faith that the NHS is there for us has been critically important, certainly throughout my lifetime. But I think over the last uh, last few years, particularly since the pandemic, but it's not because of the pandemic, we've run into to real problems. And for me, this is because we just don't haven't worked out really what we're trying to achieve with it. We, we put all our eggs into a particular set of baskets and, and then are surprised when we have problems elsewhere. In your book, Side Effects, you argue that the NHS is poorly designed for the type of care that we need to be offering. Can you give me an example of that? Well, let's take, I mean, when I, when I was a GP, I remember very well, I remember a patient of mine, a man who had, let's see if I can remember it all, he had coronary artery disease, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, osteoarthritis of the hip, macular degeneration, which is an eye problem, and hardly surprisingly depression. He had this multiplicity of problems which need to be cared for and understood by a generalist who can take the whole, the whole of his care on board. And yet what we've managed to do is hyper-specialise healthcare. So go into any hospital and you'll see care subdivided into the different bits, cardiology, respiratory, whatever. And we've let that side, the single condition side, expand dramatically 
whilst we've let the general side, the care side for the whole individual, atrophy, we all know what desperate states general practice is in at the moment, and that's because of workforce. The number of doctors that we've managed to recruit into general practice has plummeted, whilst simultaneously the number of hospital doctors has gone up. It's almost as if we've designed the health service based on the interests of specialisms rather than on the needs of patients with multiple problems. And there's an awful lot of those around. And is it down to that? Is it down to pressure and the influence of senior consultants? I think it's just the tyranny of the urgent, the exciting and the new. So, you know, if this new tech comes along, if there's exciting new genomics or there's exciting new technologies that can be used, they get the headlines. And at the same time, some of the bits of healthcare that sound a bit boring sort of are allowed to wither on the, on the, on the vine. I mean, really interesting evidence, for instance, around the value of continuity of care, of seeing the same doctor on a regular basis, something that most of us can only dream of now. There's been research that showed a couple of years ago that if you stay with the same GP over many years, you have fewer need for hospital admission, reduced out-of-hours care, and a lower rate of early death. Now, if that was a drug, we would have invested in it massively. But because it's just the ability to be able to see a doctor who knows you, uh, we've somehow just let it drift. I don't think this has been deliberate. I think, I mean, the reason I call my book Side Effects is because I think some of these things are the side effects of sort of other other policies. So this bit of healthcare looks really exciting. We'll invest in it. And meanwhile, we let personal care, we let general practice absolutely wither and get into crisis. Ever since the Labour era, there has been a big focus on targets uh, like the 18-week one for referrals to try and push the NHS to perform better. Do these targets help? Keir Starmer has said, I think the day I'm speaking to you, that he's going to double down on those. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. I, I have absolutely no doubt that targets, particularly which were introduced uh, during the Blair government, uh, made a big difference to waiting times when they were linked in with very dramatically increased uh, funding for the health service and for workforce. The promises at the moment that seem to be coming out of uh, of, of, of increased access, well, you simply can't do that if you haven't got the staff or you haven't got the facilities in, in the organisation. So a lot of targets can be really helpful, really beneficial, but they frequently have side effects. They have unintended consequences. A simple example, for instance, when in the early days of the four-hour A&E uh, emergency target, I mean, we could only dream about four hours now, but when it was brought in, the intention was to get people seen quicker. And that worked. The side effect of that was sometimes people were kept waiting in ambulances deliberately to stop the clock starting to make sure that you could hit the four hour target. Now, nobody benefits from that. It's what we used to call hitting the target and missing the point. You know, the point is improved care, but the, uh, the behavior is understandable, particularly if funding is linked to it. People's behavior changes. So you used to chair NICE, and of course, that's key to thinking about the way the NHS distributes its funding. Explain to our listeners what NICE does. Well, NICE has two main roles. One of them is to produce what are called clinical guidelines, which are best practice guidelines for how particular conditions should be dealt with. So if you've got high blood pressure or diabetes, ensuring that all clinicians and patients and patients are aware of what the best possible care 
looks like. So that's that's a major part of their role. The other part is to look at new drugs coming on the market or new technologies of any other sort and just and trying to determine whether the extra cost is justified by any extra benefit. So if you have a new drug brought brought out for a particular cancer, does it bring benefits that outweigh the fact that it almost certainly is going to cost more? So it's not a licensing thing, it's a cost effectiveness test. And, and that's critically important. I mean, countries all around the world look to NICE who are seen as a global leader in the ability to, to determine this, to determine cost, cost effectiveness. Now, that isn't the same thing as looking at the best way of spending money in the health service. I've already used the example of, you know, if you could see your, your, a GP who knew you, then the benefit of investing in that might almost certainly outweigh the benefit of investing in some cancer drugs. But nobody does that that comparison that doesn't doesn't fit into the methodologies. And presumably you found yourself and I still finds itself dealing with some very difficult decisions. Incredibly difficult. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I'm very clear that if, if one of my family was taken seriously ill, then I would consider, uh, you know, if we spent the whole of the UK's gross domestic product in keeping them alive, it'd be, it'd be justifiable. But I'm not sure I'd necessarily feel that about sort of everybody else in the country. Of course I wouldn't, because you can only spend money once. So someone has to determine how to spend it wisely. What is the best way of ensuring that we don't just pay out huge sums for particular treatments without being sure at least you get some benefit from them? There is a lot of emphasis on these life-prolonging cancer drugs, and you hear some quite heart-rending stories, uh, particularly from younger people who have cancer. But when I spoke to the Dr. Rachel Clark for Jam Tomorrow, which is a series on post-war Britain that came out earlier this year that uh, Podmasters did, she was very passionate about the failure of the NHS to care for people properly at the end of their lives. Is that something that troubles you too? Oh gosh, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, not not wishing to depress any of our listeners, but the simple fact is that we're all going to die, and we're all going to go through uh, an end stage of our lives. Now, I find it completely extraordinary that hospices, for instance, are generally funded as charities. Go down in you know any high street, and you'll see the charity shops raising money for hospices. Hospices provide wonderful care. They're not the only part of the system. GPs can provide wonderful care. Hospitals can, but hospitals aren't designed for end-of-life care. Now, we would be up in arms if our maternity units were only funded by charity shops. You know, we see that part of life, the birth bit, as, as, as being vitally important for the NHS to support, but we sort of just ignore the dying bit. But high quality palliative care, as Rachel would have said to you, just makes such a difference, not just to the person who's dying, but their loved ones, the family around them, to know that the care they're getting towards the end of their life is, is the best. So it's, I find it it's a classic example of a sector of healthcare that we've somehow let, let wither or ignore whilst putting sort of vast sums into other bits, which just seem a bit more exciting. I, I mean, it, it feels that that's the only explanation for why these these and, and budgetary uh, clever lobbying by 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 you know pharmaceutical companies and other technology companies there's no one really there to 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 lobby uh, for for palliative care other than people like Rachel of course my own experience of my father at the end of his life was that nobody wanted to take responsibility you would just move from pillar to post because it was going to cost somebody some money 
and they were all keen that it wasn't them. And that was terrible. It was a terrible thing to deal with. No, I, I absolutely agree, Ros. It's heartbreaking. And when it's done well, it can be remarkable. I mean, there's fascinating, extraordinary evidence that good palliative care can actually, people with, who receive good palliative care can have a better prognosis, in other words, live longer in more health than some patients who receive sort of very aggressive uh, radiotherapy, chemotherapy and so on towards the end of their life. There's a real tendency for the healthcare system just to try one more dose of whatever, you know, the, the, the treatment rather than to focus on the quality of living. Now, I can say all this because I myself suffered from cancer four years ago. I was seriously ill for a long, long time. I'm hopefully now through all that. So I completely get the pressure to put everything into the treatment. And I'm delighted I got treated. But just survival, just you know, ensuring a, a few more weeks of life because you've received a massively expensive drug isn't necessarily the most logical way of going forward. And I suppose with palliative care, no one comes out the other side from experiencing that. And people who are intimately associated with it, you, you don't want to think about how bad it was as well. There's a real reluctance. But, but Ros, you've got, no one comes out the other side as the, as the patient experiencing it. But people such as yourself, talking about your mm. father, come out the other side, having had an experience of healthcare that has left you upset, and understandably so. So, you know, this stuff really does matter to, to every single person in the population. Chris Ham from the King's Fund, who's a very senior health economist, as you'll know, wrote recently that too much of the cash that is available has gone to hospitals at the expense of other care. And that's something you've already mentioned in terms of specialisms getting more money. But he also talks about the need for a big investment in public health. What is public health? Why does it get neglected? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's immensely neglected. Put very simply, it's helping people to stay healthy, particularly by protecting them from threats to their health. I remember there was a wonderful quote, I think it was Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa, who said, you know, if you've got a, a raging river going past with bodies in it, you can sort of keep jumping in and try and pulling the bodies out and seeing if they're still alive, or you can go upstream and see why they keep falling in. Now, going upstream and seeing why people become ill is what public health is all about. So things, things that have been very, very successful have been the attack on smoking, which we've made real progress on in this country. But obesity and diet, Henry Dimbleby's recent sort of excellent book um, on the whole problem of obesity and diet in this country is one that just keeps being ignored. And again, in the news today, there's been a lot about uh, treatments for diabetes and potential benefits for diabetes. But if we could sort out diet and weight, we would prevent so much, so many of these problems. But all the focus, all the focus goes over and over again into the hospital sector. Whilst so we just let people become ill effectively and then pick up the pieces and wonder why we can't keep up, why the, why the demand is constantly outstripping supply. Let's talk about the strikes briefly, because clearly they're having a terrible effect on the ability of the NHS to catch up with its waiting lists. This generation of junior doctors seems to have said, up with this, we will not put, you know, to the point of refusing to cover for A&E and cancer care when they strike. Are these junior doctors doing the right thing, in your opinion? I totally, 
totally understand where they're coming from. The immense frustration of not being able to deliver the quality of care that you feel you should be able to uh, to provide. It's, it's heartbreaking. Many of them are, are burnt out. I, I, I read a wonderful quote recently about uh, the, the relatively low number of doctors in the UK makes daily work extremely pressured. Frontline staff are increasingly experienced burnout. In the latest NHS survey, 40% of frontline staff have been able, unable to function properly because of stress. And they person writing this go, went on to stress the real importance of workforce, of getting more people in. And the person writing that was at the time Secretary of State, or was uh, Chair of the Health Select Committee, former Health Minister Jeremy Hunt, who is now, of course, our Chancellor. So he's, he's, he's written a really excellent book called Zero about the problems of safety in the health service and has absolutely majored on workforce. So it'd be terribly sad and deeply ironic if the guy in charge of the money wasn't able to find a way of sorting this out. The First Minister of Scotland has just announced that Scotland isn't going to be going ahead with its plans for a national care service, which was going to sort of sit in parallel with the NHS and given an entitlement to care. It just seems too difficult. This doesn't seem to have got much attention in the in the national press, which surprises me a little bit. What do you think we ought to do about social care apart from the basics of funding it properly? I mean, should it be part of the NHS rather than the responsibility of local councils? Well, I, I'm pretty certain that in 100 years or 200 years, we'll look back on this era and say, what on earth did they think they were doing? Why is it, for instance, that someone who develops Alzheimer's towards the end of their, their life is pretty well left on their own when it comes to sort of ongoing care. Whereas if you're luckier, and I'm being ironic in this, and, and you develop cancer, then you get all your care covered and dealt with. That makes no sense at all. Why is one condition uh, seen as being uh, something that the health service should look after and the other condition isn't? It just doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. Now, I absolutely, absolutely get the challenge of funding funding this, but it does come down to trying to work out what it is that our health and social care system, and I would put them all together, uh, what is it trying to achieve? And of course, there's much more to social care than simply Alzheimer's. There's, there's many, many other conditions. I don't think it registers with most people. I mean, your point, Ros, that it hasn't made much traction in the news. That's mainly because none of us, most people don't even know what social care is till it hits them. And then they're surprised when it can't provide, you know, to the extent that they were they were expecting. They would have assumed it would be part of the NHS and um, and comes at a big shock when it doesn't. It almost feels as if we're in avoidance mode, you know, particularly with the things we talked about, palliative care and social care. We just don't want to think about those things. It's just, are there other countries that, that do this better than we do and are better at talking about it than we are? I haven't found anywhere in, in, in the world that's got the perfect answer to this. Sometimes these things do come down to funding. There is no doubt, for instance, uh, in Germany, the Netherlands, you, you can get better results from some aspects of healthcare, but then they put a higher proportion of GDP in and they have many, many more doctors. It's not just doctors, it's nurses, it's allied health professionals, physios and so on. But I also, I mean, what I write about in my book is the fact that this cannot go on forever because there is almost uh, infinitely expanding expectation. I, I, I remember 
reading the biography of a general practitioner who practiced in the late 1800s. And there was a list of his very busy morning surgery and almost everything that he that that doctor had treated in the 1800s. We've now wiped out and our doctors are busier than they've ever been. Um, and which made me think, well, if we go another hundred years in the future, will we have wiped all this current load of conditions out and replaced it with something else? And the suspicion is probably yes, unless we look at these things in a different way. So countries like Cuba, just to come back to your question, countries like Cuba, which is very, very different from us, has put, they don't have much money, but they have invested hugely in primary care and in prevention and in things like hygiene and, and in you know, ensuring the, the basic what's called the social determinants of health, the things that really make a difference to our health are addressed. Other countries do it different ways, but we have, we have to tackle this. We absolutely have to have a national debate, which is what I'm really trying to encourage. This isn't down to experts like me or anybody else to determine what, what we should be doing. It is for the public to have an honest debate about this and try and get the politicians to get off their high horses and debate it as well. Is there anything that we could do to prepare better for the next pandemic, which I keep reading is not going to be a once in a century event, but could come along within the next 15 years, quite conceivably? Is there anything that we can do to, apart from perhaps the obvious one of developing vaccine manufacturing capacity, to prepare for that? Well, there's an awful lot we could learn from the pandemic. I mean, I'm I'm bothered that the inquiry into the uh, COVID pandemic is going to take such a long time because we do need urgent lessons in case something does come along uh, much sooner. There was a lot of preparement uh, done, and then a lot of it was ignored. I think it helped the government from a political perspective to make it appear that this was something that no one could have expected and therefore don't criticise us if we're having to make it up as we go along. When in fact, if you look at all the evidence, there was an awful lot of research in advance about how some of these things could be done. We could, why on earth we went for a sort of a national test and trace system when we had a, a local public health service sitting there ready to, to act. Things like that were, were eminently dealable with, with at the time, but for strange reasons were ignored. As long as we learn from the mistakes of last time, we'll be, we'll be much better prepared. David, thanks so much for joining us. It's been absolutely my pleasure. David Haslam's book is called Side Effects, How Our Healthcare Lost Its Way and How We Fix It, and it's published by Atlantic Books. And if you like the kind of in-depth chat that we like to offer on The Bunker, you can support us by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and our group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and art direction by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 